Hi there, and welcome to the Skylight Books author reading series. If you'd like to learn more about us and our many upcoming author events, please visit skylightbooks.com, where you can browse our inventory, buy books, and join our Friends with Benefits Club. You can also follow us on Twitter, Tumblr, and Facebook. To speak to a real live bookseller like me, please call 323-660-1175. Thanks for your support, and enjoy. So, um, artist and writer William E. Jones, we're so happy to have him back in the store. His previous book, True Homosexual Experiences, a biography of Straight to Hell's iconoclastic editor, Boyd MacDonald, celebrates the frank, raunchy language of the first queer zine. Jones brings the same unsparing and profane attitude to I'm Open to Anything, his debut novel. Please welcome William E. Jones. Hello there. Can you hear me? Um, so, first of all, um, my publisher's in the room, uh, Jarrett from We Heard You Like Books. And uh, the experience of publishing True Homosexual Experiences was very positive for him. And he said, from now on, I just want to publish dirty gay books. <laughs> and I said, I can write you one. And he said, I'm open to anything. I said, you've just given me the title. So the challenge of this text was to write a novel that deserves the title, I'm open to anything. Um, and I hope I've lived up to that title and the cover. I've decided not to be too smutty tonight. I figure if you want to read the porno sections, you can buy the book. Uh, and uh, so it'll be a fairly anodyne reading I do this evening. There are two sections of the book I'm reading, two discrete sections. Uh, when I started to, excuse me, when I started to uh, write it, I wrote it, I, I started on the day of our current president's inauguration. And I thought the, the best thing I can do is write a porno novel. And um, I wrote like a maniac and I wrote quite a lot and there were all these flashbacks and flash forwards and all these extraneous characters. And then in subsequent drafts, I got rid of virtually all of it. I cut out about 100 pages. Uh, and all that was left was one single flashback, which is what you're about to hear first, uh, the first section that I'll read tonight. And it's set in Berlin in the mid-1980s. The second section is set in Los Angeles in 1989 more or less in this neighborhood. So I hope you enjoy it. <clears throat> I took the train from Cologne to Berlin, passing through the territory of the German Democratic Republic in the middle of the night. I arrived at Zoo Station at 6.15 in the morning, a time I had rarely seen from either direction, and it took all my effort to make my way to Rathaus Steglitz by U-Bahn. I expected to see morning commuters, but I hardly saw any. I figured that was because I was going from the center to the suburbs, but actually words like center and suburbs had little meaning in West Berlin. The real center, Mitte, lay at the western edge of East Berlin. Surrounded by the wall, West Berlin was a forlorn landlocked island, a city built for eight million but inhabited by less than half that number. There were forests and lakes inside the wall and a few tall buildings, but mostly medium-sized ones, like the one where I would be staying. I had a German-American friend, Martin, who wanted to live for a while in his father's country. 
If he took up residence anywhere in the Federal Republic of Germany, he would be conscripted into the army. Since West Berlin was not legally part of the Federal Republic, young men who lived there were exempt from the draft. Martin, groggy and a little resentful, let me in and went right back to bed after showing me to my room. I lay down and slept past 10.30. When I got up, the place was deserted. Martin and his roommates had left for the day. I decided to visit Dahlem, where some of the art collections from the Museum Island had been relo relocated after the war. The Dahlem museums were a half hour away on foot beyond the botanical garden. It was March and very cold in Berlin. I hoped the fresh air would wake me up. Hardly anyone was in the Gemäldegalerie when I arrived. Alone and silent, I wandered from gallery to gallery looking at the art. I wanted to find Caravaggio's Cupid Victorious, the most salacious painting in a museum that prided itself on owning many St. Sebastians. A printed museum guide pointed out that paintings of a nude man pierced by arrows were not necessarily understood as sexual at all when first exhibited, a thesis I thought impossible to defend beyond doubt. On my way to Caravaggio, I heard some commotion from the only other visitors around. At a distance, I saw a man in a camel-colored overcoat talking loudly to another man who was shorter and wore a black leather jacket. The taller man was speaking French, and it was obvious that he was gay. I approached a bit to eavesdrop. I saw the taller man wore his hair in a ponytail and had a slightly worried expression on his face. He was trying to impress the other man, but failing. His back was to me, but I could tell he was older, and he said almost nothing. The two were standing in front of a Bruegel painting, but they argued about a Rembrandt, the man with the golden helmet. At that time, the Gemäldegalerie, if not, if not the entire city of West Berlin, used this painting as a promotional device. Its popularity was second only to the famous one-eyed bust of Nefertiti in the Egyptian Museum. The old man stubbornly insisted that the man with the golden helmet was not really by Rembrandt, but the younger man agreed with the traditional attribution and gave multiple reasons. The old man was proven right within a year, and this painting by someone in the circle of Rembrandt fell into obscurity. Finally, the old man said, you're wrong, there's nothing to discuss, and walked away. I reached the gallery displaying Cupid Victorious, which was larger than I had expected. The nude figure in the painting is approximately life-size. He thrusts his hairless genitals at the spectator, and the arrows in his right hand point at them for emphasis. He has not the face of a god, but of a boy who has had experience beyond his years. He tilts his head, and the look in his eye gives a wicked invitation. There's no malice in his gaze, only good humor and curiosity, yet the slight bags under his eyes suggest that he has made this proposition before. The title on the label was in Latin, Amor Vincit Omnia, Love Conquers All. As I studied Amor Vincit Omnia carefully, I didn't notice that someone had come up behind me. I snapped out of my reverie and stepped aside. As I turned towards the old man I had seen earlier in the gallery, I recognized his face. It was Jean Genet. He looked very frail, and his leather jacket completely enveloped him. He was pale and a little pink, and close-cropped white hair ringed his bald head. I could see his crooked nose, broken once many years before. I stared at him. When he was done looking at the painting, he turned to leave, and our eyes met. His gaze was warm and approving and a little mischievous. He had caught me staring, but
but was pleased to have upstaged a Caravaggio for a few seconds. I later learned that this was the last year of Genet's life, and I imagined that he was making a tour of his favorite places while he was still able to do so. Genet had written about Rembrandt, and not counting the man with the golden helmet, the museum owned 25 paintings by him. At the time, I wondered if Genet would one day write about Caravaggio. In the end, he didn't live long enough to do it. Unknown to everyone, he was at work on his last book, Prisoner of Love, and he let nothing distract him. Perhaps in the collection of the Gemälde Galerie, he found the inspiration for describing a beautiful boy in the book, someone he had known in his youth, but whose features had faded from his memory. In the brief instant I spent in Genet's presence, I didn't try to engage him in conversation. My French was poor, and I couldn't think of what to say. I don't regret not speaking to the old man. It was enough to exchange glances in a moment of complicity. And now on to the second section. This takes place in Los Angeles in 1989, and um, it refers to a couple of local institutions, one of which is a video store. I hope you all remember video stores. And uh, the other is uh, a kind of dive gay bar, which I'm quite fond of, that also no longer exists. I was broke, and loath as I was to find gainful employment, I had to get hold of money somehow. I decided the most painless path was to become a video store clerk. It would, re it would require dealing with the public, a task to which I was tempera temperamentally unsuited, but at least it would provide me with free rentals. During the VHS era, corporate chains dominated the market. At the end of the 1980s, a new blockbuster video opened every 17 hours, a statistic that terrified the proprietors of independent stores. The only way for them to make a profit was to carry titles to chain stores wouldn't. In almost every case, that meant porn. The place where I found a job, Video Active, relied heavily on this strategy for its economic survival. It had a huge selection of gay porn and not much else. Video Active's customers provided the employees with plenty of amusement and irritation. When a membership card was scanned, messages would sometimes appear on the computer, which was positioned on the counter so that the clerk could see the screen. Most were notices of late fees or expired credit cards. Some were character sketches of the more problematic customers. Examples included mean bastard, drives a Jaguar and tries to avoid paying, smells bad, don't get too close. And the one every employee dreaded most returns greasy tapes. <laughs> the porn tapes at Videoactive all bore a label reading $5 cleaning fee. When a customer returned a tape covered with lube, the clerk had the unenviable task of informing the customer that he it was never a she, had to pay an extra $5. The men who were embarrassed quietly paid. Others were not so cooperative. One especially difficult customer, the mean bastard, would often return greasy tapes and argue that it wasn't he, but a previous customer who was to blame. 
From the smirk on his face, I could tell that he got a sadistic thrill from forcing lowly clerks to deal with the residue of his masturbatory rituals. One Tuesday morning, I had a heated exchange with this man and informed him that what he said was impossible. He was the first person to rent the tape in question. In fact, he had been the first one to rent most of the gay porn videos displayed in the store. Apparently, my comment struck a nerve because he shut up and never bothered me again. This customer was humiliated to be reminded that he was also what I called a Monday man. Videoactive made new gay porn tapes available on Monday mornings, and a small group of men came into the store as soon as it opened to check them out. They rented large stacks of videos and returned them early the next morning, then promptly rented the videos that the other Monday men had grabbed before they did. This pattern of rentals and returns continued for a few days until every Monday man had seen all of the new porn videos. I never saw any of them rent a title that was over a month old. I wasn't brazen enough, brazen enough to ask, but I suspected that this was because the Monday men had already seen every single gay porn tape on the shelves of Videoactive. These customers constituted a group only to outsiders who noticed the similarity of their behavior. Even though they had a common interest, they never met to talk about what they saw or coordinate their viewing habits to avoid conflicts over new tapes, at least as far as I could tell. Every once in a while, a Monday man would ask impatiently who had rented a particular title, but I was not allowed to divulge that information. I thought this person's identity would have been obvious anyway. They were such a small group that I assumed they all knew each other, but actually these men couldn't bring themselves to acknowledge their fellows. I never overheard discussions of any substance between them. Each was alone in his obsession. I didn't make fun of the Monday men as some of my coworkers did because in a way I was as lonely as they were. I had trouble meeting men with whom I had anything in common, so I gave up on that as a goal for my excursions to gay bars. I began to patronize a bar called The Black Light on Western Avenue near Santa Monica Boulevard. I hope some of you remember it. It accepted everyone regardless of social class or race and the drinks were cheap. Every day by early afternoon, the career alcoholics would take their places on the stools at the bar. The tables didn't fill up until much later. At night, the blacklight provided a meeting place for the transvestite hookers who worked in the area and their proletarian clients, mainly Mexican men with wedding rings. Every so often, Goddess Bunny would show up. She was an underground personality having appeared in a few independent films. I first saw her in a Joel Peter Whitkin photograph, or at least I thought it was her. I imagine the more respectable gay bars gave her the bum's rush. At the blacklight, she was a celebrity. The goddess bunny had been confined to a wheelchair since childhood because her emaciated limbs barely functioned. She never explained how she came to look the way she did, but I had heard that bunny was born with polio. After unsuccessful treatments by several quack doctors, her mother, a fundamentalist Christian monster who was probably bitter that her religion forbade her from having abortions, gave her child up for adoption. She spent a horrific childhood in various orphanages and foster homes. Goddess Bunny herself volunteered very little about her past or her family. No one even knew her real name. One night I sat at her table while she held court, regaling us with the story of tricking with a local newscaster. As she spoke, the strap of her gold lame gown fell, 
and showed her bony concave chest. A fan sitting next to her put the strap back on her shoulder, and in the pause, she glanced over at her rival of the evening, Victoria, who was at a neighboring table. <clears throat> Victoria came from Cuba, and unlike Goddess Bunny, she told anyone who would listen her life story. She had arrived in the U.S. without a cent and had to hustle to make her way in the world. She sent all her spare money home to her family in Havana. They had been led to believe that she was a successful nightclub performer. The reality of her existence was far less glamorous. She was a street prostitute in Hollywood. She described herself with the wonderful Spanish word sinvergüenza, meaning shameless, which she brandished as a badge of honor. That night, Victoria wore transparent acrylic platform shoes and a white knit miniskirt. She had applied garish orange pancake makeup to her face, and it was starting to run a little. It had obviously been quite a while since she had been able to touch up her lipstick. The poor creature did what she could to hide the jagged masculine features that other hookers cruelly called cara de culo, ass face. In defiance of her detractors and to draw attention away from her face, Victoria showed her shapely behind as often as possible. I regularly saw her wearing a leather miniskirt so short that her cheeks were exposed. The, this outfit drew unwanted attention from the police, especially when she ventured more than a block or two away from the easternmost part of Santa Monica Boulevard, where the cheapest street hustlers plied their trade. Goddess Bunny was about to launch into another story when, she heard, when we all heard a crash. Victoria broke a beer bottle against the tabletop and wielded it at her companion. She screamed, just because I sell my body doesn't give you the right to touch me anytime you want. She abruptly got up, stormed through the door, and stuck out her thumb to hitchhike down Western Avenue. The man who provoked her wrath tried to sneak out, but as there was only one door to the blacklight and Victoria was standing directly in front of it, he was hard to miss. She took the opportunity to scream insults at the man. Once she had calmed down a bit, Victoria came back into the bar and gave her best interpretation of wounded pride. <clears throat> Goddess Bunny, who had had no interest in this spectacle, turned to me and said, I have to crap and you gotta help. <laughs> uh, okay, I said as I looked around, seeing no one else at the table, the others had gone over to Victoria in the aftermath of the fracas. I followed Goddess Bunny as she maneuvered her electric wheelchair to the restroom, a large space that was protected by a locked cage. I wondered if the bar had been a pawn shop in earlier decades. I opened the sturdy metal door for her, and once inside, she shimmied out of her lame dress quickly and skillfully. It was up to me to lift her skinny frame and pull down her panties. I discovered that she had an uncircumcised penis of greater than average size and large pendulous testicles. I placed her on the toilet. In all innocence, I assumed that I was done with my job at that point, so I made my way to the door. Wait a minute, Goddess Bunny shouted. You're not finished. You have to wipe my ass. <clears throat> Holding my breath, I took a wad of toilet paper and did as she told me. I then flushed the toilet, helped her get dressed, and placed her back in her wheelchair. She thanked me, she thanked me, and I felt a new respect for this luminary of Los Angeles nightlife, 
whose simplest bodily functions required the assistance of people she barely knew on a constant basis. I opened the door, walked out, and Goddess Bunny whizzed by me shouting, coming through, as she drove back to her table. Thank you. And what happens now? Do we have a book signing? Or do I answer questions? Oh, God, could you possibly have questions for me? I forgot there's a Q&A. Say something, please. Tom. What did I do? I barely remember now. <laughs> um, well, the big decision was deciding that it wasn't going to be too artsy, that the form of the novel was going to be quite straightforward. I originally also thought it was going to be simply pornography. But then I decided to add all kinds of other details, which some of which you heard in this reading. Uh, and so... That's, that's one aspect of it. And another aspect which you didn't hear is that uh, the narrator has sex with men and then has conversations with them. And those conversations are a major part of the latter part of the novel. They, um, the people that the narrator meets during his sexual, whatever you want to call it, journey, uh, they have all sorts of things to say about their lives, and those narratives are very important to the latter part of the book. So I don't know. Did I research how other novels are written? I can tell you one thing. When I was young and stupid, I used to read novels for pleasure. <laughs> now that I've written one, there is no more pleasure. All I do is think about how they're constructed and all the devices that are used. And is this appropriate? What's going on here? Isn't that a cliche? You know, and why is there an ellipsis when there's a sex scene? That, that's actually a major complaint of mine. Uh, I, I, perhaps this should remain nameless, but I did, write, I did read a, a fairly famous recent novel that was adapted into a perfectly anodyne film and uh, the the person who wrote it just what a you know the, the the pivotal moment in the in the whole novel is when the f two main characters have sex and it occurs exactly halfway through and the the sex scene is foreplay and then there's an, a, a blank there's an ellipsis and it's the next morning and that's one of the things that I wished to correct, if you will, in the present novel which I, from which I've read. Joe. I've read Reno Camus. I've, I've read Tricks. Uh, and I, okay, so 
maybe not him specifically, but I can say that a lot of my inspirations are French. Uh, there is something so sad about puritanical American culture that intellectual pursuits have to be on this side and bodily functions are on this side. It's as though we're brains floating in a bunch of jars and we don't ever, you know, have sex or go to the bathroom. And I guess we're allowed to eat in novels. But, you know, this division is, it's just a symptom of the puritanism of the English-speaking world. And in France, they arrange things differently. There's a long tradition and a very interesting tradition of intellectual pornography. You know, Saad, as aberrant as he was, he was respected and held up as a great example by philosophers and intellectuals. They might not have liked him, but they understood the importance of what he did. Denis Diderot, who's a figure I adore, the author of the encyclopedia, his first novel was actually a porno novel called The Indiscreet Jewels. So, you know, I'm very interested in this ideal world where this sexual material and intellectual pursuits are combined and they're not divided in some artificial way. Um, and one thing I can also mention is uh, Olympia Press. That's an inspiration for me. Uh, they existed in Paris, but their chief market was the English-speaking world, particularly the United Kingdom. And uh, they did dirty books, but they hired really good writers to write these dirty books. William S. Burroughs was published by them. Uh, Alexander Trochi wrote books for them. Uh, lots of very interesting authors worked often under pseudonyms for Olympia Press, which at the end of its career, I should mention, also published The Scum Manifesto by Valerie Solanas. And um, so for, for me, this is a great example. Uh, the scam of, of Olympia Press was, it was basically smuggling. They would print these books in English in Paris and French censorship laws didn't cover them and they would smuggle them into the United Kingdom and, or they would sell them to tourists who went back across the channel and brought the books with them. And um, this is a tried and true method. It's actually the way that Ulysses got imported into the United States. All sorts of things were necessary at that point because censorship was much stricter. But I love this notion that one can do, still do something maybe a little bit illicit or a little bit naughty, but at the same time be an intellectual. Do I miss? Okay, so in parentheses, this is a novel, but it is a novel narrated in the first person. So I'm assuming more than a few people will assume that it is my autobiography in some way. It is not my autobiography. But that having been said, yes, I did work at Video Active. <laughs> and and I, I, I do describe things that I rented there 
in the text, so you'll have to read it. But I do remember a double bill, I, and this is actually one of the sections of the book, there was a double bill I, I rented one evening and it was suddenly last summer and Latin cop sex. <laughs> and I admit that I liked the latter better than the former. <laughs> so, I mean, do I miss that time? I mean, you know, we're, I consider this book to be mainly about Los Angeles before gentrification did its work on the city. Uh, and maybe that work isn't done. There's plenty more horrors in store for us. But um, there were all sorts of weird things happening in Los Angeles in the 80s and 90s. And I, I want, one of the things I want the book to do is to make a record of some of that. Not, it's not really a history of that scene, but I do want there to be something in the book that gives you the flavor of what Los Angeles was like when I arrived here, for instance. I, I got to Los Angeles in 1987. Uh, I've been here more than 30 years, and a lot has changed. And, you know, I guess certain things have changed for the better. We have skylight books, but uh, other things, you know, have been kind of disastrous. Well, the black light doesn't exist anymore. Or the spotlight. Or the spotlight. I mean, there's a whole litany of gay bars that don't exist anymore. The basic, oh yeah, yeah, I mean, I mentioned basic plumbing in the, in the text. It doesn't exist anymore. Uh, and what's it called? Exile doesn't exist anymore. This, this neighborhood, roughly, not exactly this neighborhood, but around the corner on Hyperion, was a whole strip of sex clubs and gay bars interspersed with auto shops. And, you know, one by one, they all closed for various reasons, but having a lot to do with gentrification. And Cuffs, oh yeah, Cuffs is legendary. I don't write about it at great length in the book, but it is quite, it was quite a place. They kept getting their liquor, liquor license revoked for lewd conduct in the toilets. Uh, but very much to their credit, the current owners have not removed the graffiti on the restroom door. Uh, on the restroom door it says, slave toilet. <laughs> you don't see that every day. Yeah. Yeah, I know, I, I do, did know those films, although I have to say the person I related to a lot more was Fred Halstead, uh, who I wrote the biography of. Um, and actually want to announce, I'll plug myself again shamelessly, Semiotext has informed me that the first printing of Halstead Plays Himself, my book on Fred Halstead, is nearly sold out. There are 25 copies left, and they have asked me to do a second printing for which I will do a new afterword. So it'll be an expanded edition of Halstead Plays Himself, including a few corrections to things I didn't know when uh, I wrote the first version. Uh, and, and so, you know, that's something to look forward to in the, in the future. This uh, is a decision that was only made a couple of weeks ago, so give me some time. But yeah, for me, uh, Fred was much more to my taste. Uh, maybe also as a person, 
there's actually a scene in the book where the narrator and Fred Halstead have an extended conversation, but I won't spoil it for you. Yes. Oh, right. Yeah, I mean, there's a lot of fist fucking in the book. But don't let that dissuade you. I mean, for some of you, that's a real draw. Uh, yeah, that's, that's actually part of the, the book. This, uh, I mean, you know, how, how do I put this? Sex sometimes implies a narrative. There's a kind of sexual awakening that happens. And uh, one of the things about fisting is it is a highly demanding skill. And it is something that is learned in concert with another person or with a series of other people. And this is a very good way to hang a narrative on something. Uh, this, you know, why not? And the way I describe the book, which is, I mean, it wasn't used for the blurb, but I refer to it as a pornographic Bildungs, Bildungsroman. And Bildungsroman is the novel of an education. And the education, you know, the narrator learns how to fist people, but he also learns a lot of other things as well. And there's also the sense that the ritual of fisting unlocks emotional and psychological aspects of a person that were otherwise not accessible. So there's, you know, there's really something to be said. And I can't think of another fisting novel in English. Uh, we, I mean, it's not our main selling point with the book. By the way, the person who asked me this question is the publisher. Uh, but you know, there, there are, there are, there is some fisting in French novels, but uh, in the English language literary world, there's, I mean, it's virtually unheard of. It's usually the kind of act that is turned away from by the, by the, the, the writer, much in the same way that, you know, there's an ellipsis and it's suddenly the next morning, uh, most, oh, she's got a lot of fisting in her work. Is this, is this fisting between boys? L lesbians is, lesbians is, that's okay with me, but I will, I will warn you that the fisting scenes that take place in this book are between gay men, yeah, which is possibly quite different. I don't know. I, I, I think, I think, I'll just put it this way. A prostate gland is a big game changer. I'll leave it at that. Was that the <laughs> can I can I get any more uh, appropriate than that? You know, is there anything else I can say about this book without totally spoiling it? Uh, any other questions? Oh, okay, Joe, another question.
Goddess Bunny is a public figure, so she can't sue me. Everything I assert in the book is correct to the best of my knowledge. Um, for those of you who are not familiar with her appearance, uh, she not only appears in uh, a Joel Peter Witkin photograph, but she's also in the video for The Dope Show by Marilyn Manson. And uh, that's a, probably the most famous appearance she made in culture. She appears near the end of the video dancing. Uh, I did not mention that in the book because it's anachronistic. That was made in 1999 or maybe 1998, which is after the book's action comes to an end. Uh, but she was, and, and she's still around, but she was, she was a legendary figure at a certain moment in Los Angeles nightlife. Uh, and she did make some really quite extraordinary pornographic tapes, which I personally do not own, so don't ask me for them. But, you know, I have seen them. Uh, yeah. So, yeah, it's, it's, it's a fa fairly, I mean, does anyone here know Bunny? Yeah, I mean, it's fairly accurate as a representation. She ran for mayor of Inglewood. Yeah, she's from the South Bay, so she doesn't get up here as often as maybe she should. Uh, but yeah, and, and at the time I had <laughs> at the time I had interactions with her, she wasn't talking about her real life. She wasn't. I mean, it was all myth. But I think she's gotten a little more real now that she's gotten into politics. <laughs> yeah, kind of, you know. But um, yeah. How do I cope with gentrification? Well, in the case is uh, in this particular case, I wrote a book. Um, you know, faced with some kind of calamity, I, I'm a certain kind of person. I'm not out in the street at every protest. I admit, I'm just not. That's I'm not. I'm not made of that stuff. But what I decided to do was to write a book uh, that paid tribute to some of my favorite things about this city and some of my favorite people in the city. Is there anything good going on now? I'm not the person to ask. I, I, I think it's probably better to ask someone in their 20s, to be totally honest with you. Uh, yeah, sorry, I, I, I'll beg off on that question. Is that it? All right, so we're going to have a book signing. Thank you. Thank you. You're welcome. Wasn't that just grand? Wasn't that grand? Um, we're so very happy that you came to talk to us. Um, I remember that store. I don't think I was sober yet, but um, you look va vaguely familiar in some of the stalls. No, I'm joking. <laughs> Um, so what I'll do is I'll move all this stuff out of the way. Um, I will bring out a table uh, where William can uh, happily sign his books. We have copies of his books available at the register, and we'd love it if you bought the books first before you got them signed. Um, copies are going really fast, so don't hesitate to get one. Thanks. Yeah, it looks like we've looks like we've almost sold out, which is lovely news. My my secret fear is that all of the we've had quite a few sales actually. Uh, and my secret fear is that the sales are just on the basis of the cover. <laughs> and I'm hoping I'm...
Uh, knock wood, I'm hoping that once people read the book, it will continue to sell. <laughs> uh, thank you for your support. Uh, we have some copies up here that I'll make sure are delivered up front, so uh, please help yourself. And again, thank you all very much for coming. You've been listening to the Skylight Books author reading series. Don't forget, you can listen to this and all of our other great podcasts at skylightbooks.com. Thanks again for stopping by, and we hope to see you soon.